Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 92. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that make electrolyte products that match how you sweat. So they have electrolytes of different concentrations. So depending on whether you are somebody that has a high concentration of sodium in your sweat or a low or a moderate concentration of sodium in your sweat, you can choose your electrolytes to match that accordingly. And they have made it easy to figure out where you might fall by creating a free online sweat test. There is a simple quiz that you can take on their website, precisionhydration.com. And it consists of 10 simple questions that you answer, and that will give you a good validated ballpark estimate for where you fall on the sweat sodium concentration spectrum. So check them out. And if you are interested in buying their electrolyte products, use the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. They are creators of super innovative technologies within these categories, including things like the ARMSAC technology that all of their wetsuits and trisuits have to uh, maximize your shoulder uh, mobility when you're swimming, and uh, the Geeko anti-slip technology that all of their sunglasses and uh, prescription glasses have to make it literally impossible to shake the glasses off of your face so check out what roca has to offer and you can get 20 percent off your order with a promo code that you will get on roca.com forward slash tts now on to today's questions which are from joel in singapore and joel writes hi michael great job on the podcast and cutting to the chase and creating a balanced view for so many triathlon and endurance training topics I'm doing triathlon for four years now. I'm based in Singapore and qualified for Kona. I have two questions. One, we pretty constantly have 27 to 31 degrees Celsius in Singapore. And even early mornings, the conditions would be 25 to 28 degrees and 70 to 90% humidity. Some of my indoor bike sessions I do without turning on the air conditioning in a room where I would have these temperature and humidity conditions. What dosage in terms of frequency and volume of training in these conditions is uh, recommended uh, when it comes to balancing heat adaptation with uh, the other training benefits that uh, I might get from training in an air-conditioned room and also versus the potentially higher stress that the heat training will give? Are there any changes to this uh, mix as the season progresses and in the last four to eight weeks before a race? Most of my races are in hot and humid conditions. Uh, All right, Joel, I'll answer that one first, and then we'll cut back into your second question. So a quick recap uh, of why it is more difficult to uh, exercise and produce power and pace and what have you in the heat uh, compared to in temperate conditions. Uh, This is uh, mostly due to the fact that in order to maintain the body core temperature within an acceptable range, Uh, cooling mechanisms will need to be ramped up in hot conditions and that means that more blood flow needs to go to the skin uh, to increase the sweat rate and uh, that blood is then not available to deliver oxygen to the working muscles so essentially your vo2 max is decreased in fact when when you're training in the heat or racing in the heat 
and or uh, inversely or uh, similarly to go at a certain a given fixed power or speed output that requires you to work at a higher percentage of your effective VO2 max in the heat compared to what you would be doing for the same power output or pace output in temperate conditions. In addition, there are also central nervous system uh, perturbations. So there's definitely a greater propensity for central fatigue and uh, basically a limited ability to maintain strong muscle activation through central nervous system fatigue uh, when you're training or racing and especially when durations get longer in the heat. We can acclimate to reduce these performance impairments in the heat. It will never be a 100% reduction. There will always be a reduction in performance in the heat compared to in temperate conditions. But we can acclimate and uh, the acclimation can have a huge impact compared to doing no acclimation at all. Some studies have also found that heat acclimation may actually lead to improved performance in temperate climates. But in this area, there is conflicting evidence. There are studies for and against that. So the jury is still out on that particular question. And I wouldn't count on getting any uh, any effects, any performance benefits in temperate conditions from heat adaptation based on what we know uh, today. Heat acclimation occurs when we are exposing the body to uh, to repeated heat, which is sufficiently stressful to really elevate your core body temperature and your skin temperature and have you uh, work at high sweat rates. Physiologically, the main thing that uh, happens when we acclimate to heat is that we get an expansion of blood plasma volume. But this comes without a change in the number of red blood cells, which are the oxygen-carrying cells in the blood. And there's also uh, enhanced skin perfusion and sweat gland uh, response to this heat exposure training, which uh, is important because sweating is uh, our main uh, mechanism for for keeping the the body temperature uh, within an acceptable range. So that sweat rate is something that we want to to improve and increase through heat acclimation. Heat acclimation can be done through active exposure, so training in the heat to the degree that your core temperature uh, rises and your skin temperature rises and you sweat at a high rate. But it can also happen or occur through passive exposure, for example, by going into a sauna and doing sauna-related protocols. Simply living in a hot climate, however, does not provide a sufficient stimulus for optimal heat acclimation. So uh, that's uh, we definitely need to take an active uh, an active effort to to acclimate and and not just count on the fact that where you are living is very hot, so you'll be prepared for whatever race day throws at you. The passive strategy, so sauna protocols, for example, uh, have the benefit that uh, there aren't any direct trade-offs in your workouts. So, for example, compared with the active exposure in training, you would see a reduced power or pace for the same equivalent effort level when you're training in in the heat to the degree that your core temperature is rising the way it should when you're doing a heat exposure training session. But uh, that is a trade-off that you don't have to make through the, the passive passive protocols. On the other hand, it is an additional time commitment outside of training. You can't kill two birds with one stone, so to say. And also, uh, this is something that I don't think has been studied, so it's definitely speculation on my part. But I would speculate that uh, doing at least some of your heat adaptation as active work in training 
is important in order to gain some psychological adaptations and just getting confidence and getting habituated to cycling or running or what have you in the heat. It is also important to note that the greatest effects of heat acclimation protocols come in races in dry heat. And the effects are much smaller in humid climates because the benefits of the improved sweating are much smaller because the humid environment puts environmental constraints on your evaporative cooling, which is what uh, the sweating uh, contributes to. So for you, Joel, living in Singapore and racing in mostly humid races, this is obviously unfortunate because you won't get the full effect that you would in a uh, in a dry uh, dry heat. But uh, it's important to note, and everybody would will be in the same boat in those particular races. And uh, just because the effects are smaller doesn't mean that heat adaptation isn't important. In fact, I think it uh, it definitely is. But you just have to be aware that uh, it will be very different to go and race in Southeast Asia in a hot race compared to, for example, something like um, St. George or a similar race in North America, which might be very hot, but a very dry heat. Now, when it comes to established training and acclimation, heat acclimation protocols, I'm largely here drawing upon the chapter on training and racing in the heat from the textbook Endurance Training by Inigo Moyica that I very often reference. This in particular chapter is written by Professor Lars Nubo. And uh, some general points about, uh, about heat acclimation before we get into a specific protocol. So first, active exposure and heat stress-free training must be conducted at an intensity and time of day where the combined stress is enough to raise core temperature significantly by a minimum of one degree Celsius over your normal exercise response. Now, very few of us obviously will have core temperature sensors laying around or be willing to shell out the amount of money these uh, sensors cost. I think it's several hundred dollars, uh, although I'm not quite sure. But uh, that's not really an issue. Uh, We don't need to measure this accurately. We can use heart rate as a guideline because even at 50 to 60% of VO2 max, so that's something that uh, should be a very comfortable endurance pace, given a large enough heat stress, heart rate will approach maximal values. So that doesn't necessarily mean that every single heat exposure session you need to hit max heart rate or close to max heart rate. But it just means that we can use heart rate as a guideline and and I'll get to that in a little bit. The second point, general point I want to make is that workouts do not need to be exhaustive to provide the desired effect. But uh, the perceived exertion will and should be quite high from these heat exposure workouts. And third, regarding the time, the duration of a heat acclimation protocol and the magnitude. So how much do you need your core temperature to, to rise? In terms of time, it can be as little as 7 to 10 days with one hour per day of moderate intensity uh, heat exposure exercise. And as for the temperature, there really isn't any guideline for how hot your room should be. Um, We talked about at least one degree Celsius core temperature higher than your normal uh, response to training, but that's not really useful unless you have a, a sensor. So practically speaking, the end result must simply be a significantly increased core temperature, which you can measure by proxies like heart rate and sweat rate. 
Now let's get on to the recommended uh, heat adaptation protocol that Professor Niebuhr recommends uh, going through when preparing for a race in a hot climate. So as I said, uh, the recommendation in terms of time is 7 to 10 days of the acclimation protocol. But he also says that the optimal preparation may be to combine high quality sessions with where you have low environmental heat stress. So in your uh, case, use the air conditioning with heat exposure sessions that are sufficient to induce adaptations as discussed. So while you could do the 7 to 10 day protocol on consecutive days, uh, probably a better way would be to do those heat exposure sessions on every other day and in between those days do non-heat exposure sessions. Some of them might be intensity, some of them might just be regular endurance rides or whatever you're doing in your program. But uh, that would be a good general recommendation to do 7 to 10 days, perhaps shoot for the higher end, 10 days of heat exposure, but do them on non-consecutive days every other day, essentially. The first heat adaptation session that you do, uh, the recommendation is to start with an intensity that after 5 minutes of exercise reaches 60% of max heart rate, and at that point feels fairly light, so an RPE of 3 to 4 out of 10 and uh, you should maintain this intensity until your heart rate is within 10 to 15 beats per minute of your maximum and perceived exertion reaches 8 to 9 out of 10. And normally this would take 40 to 60 minutes in sufficient environmental heat stress. And if your room doesn't get hot enough, then extra clothing may be used. During the subsequent sessions, heart rate and RPE uh, should uh, increase at slower rates for the same intensity. So you may gradually extend the workouts at this point or increase the intensity of them. But there is no need to go until full exhaustion, uh, although he says, Professor Nibble says that doing selective sessions until exhaustion may be useful for the athlete just to get an awareness of their limits and potentially to measure max tolerable core temperature. But that is if you have a, a core temperature sensor, so probably not most of us. And he also mentions that heat training could be combined with high-intensity training. And in that case, you would do intervals at the beginning of the session and uh, so that the moderate-intensity training time to induce hyperthermia can be shortened due to the pre-elevated core temperature. And this is my assumption. It doesn't explicitly say that this, but I assume that he means that in your case, for example, you would use the air conditioning for the, the high-intensity training part at the beginning and then you turn the air conditioning off and you have already pre-elevated your core temperature and then you will simply reach a high core temperature faster than than it would if you just jumped into your low to moderate intensity uh, heat exposure exercise but again i should stress that it doesn't say specifically so i'm not sure if he actually means that uh, you should do the high intensity training in the heat I would suggest that that's maybe not the best idea. That, that's not something that I would prescribe to, to my athletes. As for when to do this heat adaptation protocol, uh, I would say, and this is drawing upon discussions with uh, Dr. Stephen Chung and the interview I did with him on heat adaptation in episode 138 that I'll link to in the episode description, I would say to finish the heat adaptation period one to two weeks out from the race and then during taper, maintain the adaptations by doing maybe two heat exposure sessions per week just for maintenance 
but also this would allow you then to have less stress because the heat exposure training obviously add an extra stress in those last couple of weeks and give your body uh, good opportunities to recover properly. So if you are doing 10 days of heat exposure training and you are doing them on every other day, that's 20 days essentially, you could start that 20-day protocol five weeks out from the race and then it lasts you three weeks minus one day and then you have two weeks plus one day for taper and during which period you would be do- still be doing two of those heat exposure sessions per week for maintenance. So in summary, it seems that we can gain uh, heat adaptations and acclimate to heat uh, quite fast, but it requires a concentrated dose. So again, an example would be sen- seven to 10 consecutive days or maybe 10 days over a three-week period as I just described. But we also lose it fast unless we maintain it by by doing a couple of those sessions per week or so. So with that in mind, in terms of what you should do when you're not in the final preparation phases for a race, I would advise you to do one of two things. Either do one heat exposure session per week just to try to maintain a little bit of acclimation but not stressing over it. And it might be mostly psychological in that it will feel slightly less shocking when you start your proper heat acclimation for your next race if you have had recent heat exposure. Or the other option would be to do nothing in terms of heat acclimation. Do all your training with the air conditioning on and focus on maximizing the general fitness adaptations gained from training by prioritizing the quality, so the pace or power output of your sessions and your ability to recover from them. So uh, by not having the extra heat exposure sessions, you will basically remove one stressor that would add to your body's recovery needs. So that's the answer to your first question, and I hope that helped. The second question that Joel has is, what are the limitations to working out first thing in the morning? Most of my training I do early mornings, and I'm done by the time the kids wake up. To what degree does such a workout uh, to, to what degree is such a workout suitable for a restricted carb situation? Would it limit the ability to have the greatest benefit of a threshold or VO2 max interval workout? Does a carb-rich dinner allow for sufficiently high carbohydrate levels for a 75 to 90 minute hard session? Uh, or what pre and during workout fueling would you recommend? Looking forward to your views and responses. All right. Thanks, Joel. So, uh, this question uh, first some general information generally we can achieve our highest power outputs in the afternoon or early evening but by consistently working out in the morning you are going to close the gap quite significantly i would speculate that you would close that gap significantly enough that the difference really doesn't matter you get out really almost the optimal uh, the, the optimal training adaptations from training in the morning and for what it's worth, I personally like to do many of my, my key hard workouts in the morning. Not necessarily super early, but uh, uh, I get up, I work for a couple of hours, and then I train. It's still morning. It's 8 o'clock or something, and uh, not 4 p.m. in the afternoon when, when a lot of world records are set. But there's also another benefit of working out in the morning, and that is the fact that most of our races take place in the morning. And there's some evidence that you need to adapt to exercising at race-like intensities at the time of day that you will be racing. So when you work out early in the morning, and especially when you have some sort of intensity, 
you tick that box as well. So generally speaking, no problem to work out in the morning. Going into some more specifics, and uh, first, if we start with the lower intensity workouts, then there's absolutely no problem at all, even if you are a bit lower in terms of power output in the morning compared to what you would be in the afternoon, you would easily be able to achieve whatever your lower intensity power target is for those workouts. You might potentially feel a bit sleepy, maybe a bit uh, stiff at first, as you probably know. But once you get warmed up, you probably won't uh, experience any difference compared to working out in the afternoon. So these lower intensity rides are ideal candidates to experiment with doing fasted or with fasted training with no or minimal carbohydrate supplementation during. Uh, Since you're asking about that, I'll bring it up up at this point when we're discussing the lower intensity training. Uh, Note that I say low or minimal uh, carbohydrate supplementation. I don't say like categorically no, because it really depends on what you're doing. If you're doing a three-hour ride, you should probably not uh, do that, at least not jump right in in at the deep end and do that with no carbohydrate supplementation. Even if you do that with one gel per hour, so 20 grams of carbohydrate per hour, that's still a very low carbohydrate ride for the amount of energy you're expending and since you're starting it fasted as well. So a general uh, piece of advice is that the point of these kinds of sessions is to do them with low carbohydrate availability for the working muscles. It's not to get some badge of honor for doing it with zero energy, rather than taking on just enough that it's still low carbohydrate availability, but doesn't put you at the same risk of not being able to get your muscle glycogen back up to where it should be for your next hard workout. So if you have a long ride, do feel free to take on some energy during it, even if this is planned to be a low-carbohydrate ride. Over time, of course, as you adapt and get fitter, you'll find that you might reduce how much you're taking on, and you might need to do that if you want to use those low-carbohydrate rides as a specific challenge to the system. But uh, as you're starting out, you can take on a fair bit if you're starting the ride fasted, and it will still be a fairly low carbohydrate availability ride for you because your muscles are simply not necessarily used to to starting it fasted. So I guess with that, the main point to remember is that more is not necessarily more when it comes to to fasted training. You don't have to like go crazy about it. Uh, And uh, generally, I would say with the fasted training, if you're staying on that for a moment, start simple, do maybe one or maybe two fasted rides per week of 60 to 90 minutes. Uh, that's going to be two fasted rides per week of 90 minutes would be plenty. And if you are a very fit and very experienced athlete, uh, then uh, potentially what you can do is to increase the duration of those rides over time. Uh, but also in that case, you really need to consider the energy requirements of the rides. So if you are somebody that's putting out 220 watts when you're riding easily in, in the middle of zone two, then you're going to be burning through a lot of calories and you do not want to uh, get into too extreme caloric deficits. So in that case, uh, it probably makes sense to take on some energy during the ride to avoid getting into too deep a caloric deficit. And especially so if you're going to train again later that day, it would be really important to do so. So uh, you can get plenty of bang for buck by doing one or two fasted workouts per week. That's what most research studies have found. And uh, so that would be my recommendation. Don't go overboard, but do experiment with it and do it in your low intensity rides. 
and you feel free to take on a little bit of energy and then see how you feel and gradually you can you can wean off that if if you feel really good and especially if you are somebody with a slightly lower ftp or lower threshold for the run then then your caloric deficit is not going to be as big as somebody with a higher threshold because they are just going to be burning through so much more energy that actually for less fit athletes you would be in less danger by doing them completely fasted with no supplementation at all for your higher intensity sessions on the other hand uh, let's stick with your example of threshold and vo2 max intervals in those sessions definitely you need to focus on maximizing the quality and the power output specifically of those sessions so having good carbohydrate availability is absolutely critical Uh, obviously starting the rise very early in the morning poses some challenges but uh, it is possible to get around them first as you say it all starts with the dinner the night before Uh, i would say try to make sure that you get adequate carbohydrate in through that dinner and uh, since you probably will get on the bike with no breakfast early the following morning you might even want to have a little carbohydrate snack uh, right before you go to bed depending of course on when you have dinner But for example, let's say you have dinner at 7, then having a banana or some oats at 9.30 before going to bed to top up your carbohydrate stores could be a good idea. And uh, this might depend on your overall training load, training volume and intensity. For athletes with a high training load, let's say 15 hours per week or more, I would definitely recommend having that additional snack as it can be very challenging to keep those glycogen stores anywhere near full when your training load is high and again especially if you are also somebody who is very fit you have high thresholds you produce a lot of power and burn through a lot of calories Uh, so but if your training load is not that high and maybe your thresholds aren't as high so your power and pace outputs are lower then maybe that evening snack may not be necessary but the best way to figure out is to try both options and see what gives you the best performance in that morning workout then on the morning of that workout, the hard VO2max or threshold session, if what you're doing is basically uh, going to jump straight out of bed and be on the bike within 5 to 15 minutes, I would recommend having some very quick hitting energy like gels uh, or a gel, some sports drink or something similar in that short time window before the ride uh, while you're preparing your bottles and whatnot. And during the workout itself, keep fueling with that same kind of quick hitting energy like gels and sports drink basically the idea with the quick hitting energy is that i mean there's a time a time and place for having real food while you're on the bike and you don't have to have gels for every workout if you're doing a long ride something uh, like fruit bananas would be perfect but uh, when you are need that energy to go into your system and be usable during a 75 to 90 minute uh, ride that's not the place to go for those options that's the place to go for gels and sports drinks and similar so keep fueling with those sorts of fast acting energies uh, during that workout if you can get in 60 to 90 grams per hour then you shouldn't have any problems at all in terms of your carbohydrate availability even though you didn't have a proper breakfast you should get through a 75 to 90 minute uh, workout uh, pretty easily and uh, that fast acting energy will help you uh, get get through it so that's basically it for nutrition for that high intensity workout. One more thing, uh, which is uh, outside of the realm of nutrition, uh, just in terms of the getting the most out of the session, 
One thing that I would recommend when you are doing high-intensity sessions early in the morning, especially soon after waking up, is make the warm-up a bit longer than normal. Just make sure that the warm-up is long enough for you. This is individual. Some people might need 30 minutes. For some, 10 would still be plenty. Uh, but uh, see what works for you. Make sure you do a long enough warm-up for you that has several building efforts in it. Just uh, appreciate the fact that it may take longer to warm up uh, as you're starting the workout right after waking up and uh, you you ne- don't necessarily feel ready after 15 minutes the way you might if you're doing a workout later in the day. And also if you're doing a longer warm-up, that allows you to keep taking in some energy during the warm-up and sort of catch up on, on energy. So So that's another added benefit. And that's it, really. Thank you so much for your questions, Joel. And uh, that's it for today. Keep sending in questions for future Q&A episodes to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. And if you want to take your triathlon to the next level, check out our coaching options on scientifictriathlon.com or check out our customized training plans or ready-made training plans if those options are more suitable for your needs. Finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration plan for your next race. And use the promo code thattriathlonshow15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.